Predpol, a predictive policing company with a controversial AI-driven product of the same name, equips policing agencies across the US with systems that supposedly predict crime. But what began as a sci-fi dream shared between the LAPD and the UCLA quickly transformed into a social and ethical nightmare. Welcome to this special podcast episode where I explore some of these quandaries and consequences, but with a specific focus on their history. By 2021, the dangers of Predpol are relatively well known, but how they came to be warrants further investigation. This is because, I argue, Predpol's social implications and its ethical pitfalls are rooted not only in a poorly designed system using an inappropriate algorithm, they're also rooted in the philosophical intolerance, socio-political bias, and the intellectual naivety of its designers. I'll signpost my analysis in this episode by raising numerous hard questions that I hope will guide you through my critical thinking process. This podcast is created as a learning aid and a case study example for my Masters of Engineering students. My name is Tommy Cook, instructor of AI Ethics and Society at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Let's begin. Predpol is a problem for society and ethics. This is not new. But how it came to be is another matter. There has been some fantastic investigation into some of the system's background, and of course, into who these designers are. These investigations are referenced and they're certainly revealing. But I want to dig a bit deeper into the intellectual attitudes and predispositions of who these people are. And so my first question is a modest and familiar one but an important one for kicking things off. And so I ask, from where did Predpol begin exactly? Predpol is the brainchild of a few, but most specifically, UCLA's Jeff Brantingham, a professor of anthropology who has published over 110 times, predominantly on, of course, anthropological matters, but not exclusively so. Brantingham's academic career began in studies of early Asian expeditions, in geomorphology and the use of technology by ancient civilizations. As you might imagine from a doctoral thesis titled Astride the Movius Line, late Plasticine Lithic Technological Variability in Northeast Asia, his formative work was indeed oriented toward human histories. After receiving his PhD in 1999, Brantingham's research interests continued to explore the ancient social, cultural, and economic worlds of Tibet, Uzbekistan, Mongolia, and the rest of the world beyond Western Europe. This continued for nearly a decade, until around 2010. The first time he published in a research area that could not be more different than his immediate expertise was in that fateful year. The area? Crime and not merely socio-historical dimensions of, well, what you might suspect to be largely qualitatively driven analyses of ancient crime. Rather, his work undertook a dramatic shift 
toward quantitative analyses of modern crime, not ancient crime. While his most downloaded publication is a co-authored piece on late climate change and Paleolithic cultural evolution in northern China, his next three are on the ecology of gang territorial boundaries, statistical models of criminal behavior, and offender mobility in crime pattern formation, the last of which was actually published in a co-edited book from 2008 called Artificial Crime Analysis Systems Using Computer Systems and Geographic Information Systems. In the same year that he began working with the LAPD to develop PredPol, he was still publishing on ancient history. But he was also publishing on subjects that were not self-evidently anthropological. One of his most popular papers was about detecting the effects of selective and stochastic forces in archaeological assemblages, stochastic as in randomly determined processes and patterns that may be analyzed statistically but not predicted precisely. The purpose of that paper was to turn to computational models to overcome what appeared to be the limitations of conventional research methods. To detect and diagnose the cause of change through time in archaeological assemblages, Brantingham writes, is a core enterprise of archaeology. Apparently, in archaeology, evolutionary approaches to this problem typically cast the causes of cultural change as being either random or perhaps even naturally predetermined. Either way, operating under his disciplinary assumption that change in archaeological assemblages occur randomly, Brantingham's method of analysis is not exactly qualitative. It is indeed quantitative. Using what is called the Price Equation, which partitions evolutionary processes into payoff-correlated and payoff-uncorrelated components, he writes, the goal is to evaluate change through time by modeling the frequencies of related artifacts, such as Hittite ceramics. Before I proceed with discussing this rather dramatic shift in Brantingham's research interests towards contemporary crime, an area that is almost entirely out of his realm of expertise, I do not want to understate the potential significance of his 2010 model-driven approach to human history. It raises another hard but simple and important question to me. Why? What might be gleaned from quantifying remnants of pre-modern human technologies like ceramics that are strewn across various archaeological sites? Is there value in measuring things from so long ago? It seems that there is. To detect and diagnose the causes of change through time, remember? That's what he said at the top of his paper. Though I'm not certain what he means by change. Does he mean social change? Cultural change? Evolutionary change? What kind of change are we talking about? That's a very big category to pass through without specifying. It makes for an interesting but bold declaration that requires a closer look. But before I do, let's recall here something else that he said at the top of his paper, and I quote, 
it's actually a core enterprise of archaeology to detect and diagnose the causes of change through time. I think what we need to do here is have a closer look at archaeology itself. If we understand it to be the study of human past, facilitated by the examination of history's material remains, it's reasonable that archaeologists would also be interested in understanding this so-called change. But I'm still struggling to understand something. What extra value does studying social and cultural history through mathematics provide that conventional approaches cannot? Is excavating an archaeological site to physically inspect, analyze, and reveal the meaning of ancient material culture somehow out of fashion? I think it'll be helpful to keep looking more closely at the field of archaeology. Archaeology is considered a branch of anthropology, but a socio-cultural one at that. It's not self-evident that mathematics are relevant in most fields oriented towards social and cultural history. But it seems that the study of past societies as a means of learning more about social and human evolution have rather robust methodologies. Technology and measurement is important here. For example, the usage of remote sensing through satellite imagery or laser altimeters and light detection technologies to locate dig sites matters. Conducting field surveys then unfolds as a preoccupation with systematically finding and marking features of interest, followed, of course, by excavating the ground to expose artifacts. And then the post-excavation analysis begins. And this is where things become really interesting. The cleaning, cataloging, and comparing of collections to declare their significance. I think this is where we find most of those pop culture references to the usage of archaeological science and technology. The usage of advanced techno-scientific machines and techniques to date artifacts, reveal their composition, or to uncover their DNA, as a few examples. As it seems, shortly after 2010, there was an increase in archaeological publications on the usage of computer models to do a number of new things, like generate three-dimensional virtual simulations of ancient environments to help the researcher navigate a place that they're not necessarily in at that particular point in time. But as Philip Verhagen and Thomas Whitley wrote in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory in 2012, modeling had actually been quite active in the field for nearly two decades. What began for some as simply an opportunity to try something new, to quantify, predict, and model things that had not previously been done in that way, was pretty exciting. But for others, the usage of quantification in archaeology was quite a bit more deliberate. This introduction of modeling to archaeology also emerged as a response to the problem of cultural resource management, the important but painstaking task of storing protecting, and displaying cultural artifacts. Heritage management, if you will. But aside from the spontaneous novelty of trying out modeling in a new way, in a new field, the introduction of modeling into archaeology, as Verhagen and Whitley also noted, closely reflected its more popular usage elsewhere. A different kind of CRM. Not cultural resource management, but customer 
resource management. The form of marketing, which helps companies target consumers based upon predictions derived from personal data, demographics, past purchases, and so on. As we know, this is a rather problem-stricken domain for critical thinkers and ethicists, given the wide-standing assumptions, biases, and false positives that these modeling approaches inscribe into more modern social experiences. But in archaeology, of course, the consequences should be far less socially implicating, no? While there has been debate within archaeology, for example, the usage of modeling to predict the location of archaeological sites based on either a sample of that region or in fundamental notions concerning human behavior, this usage of modeling is largely an applied method with little to no immediate ethical or social impact on the populations living around the sites themselves, upon the researchers, or the museums that invariably end up hosting the artifacts that they find. Curiously enough, the type of modeling used by Brandingham doesn't seem to fit the norm here. It doesn't fit what I had learned about what was considered normative or usual modeling within archaeology at all. Brantingham's approach is something of another novelty, a deviation perhaps even within the field. His turn to technology is not about spatial modeling, site detection modeling, nor is it about modeling used to support the management of resources. Rather, it is used to, remember what he said, detect and diagnose causes of change through time. Brantingham's objective analysis is much more abstract and much more ambitious than those we have seen elsewhere in the field, and perhaps to a fault. He is taking something for granted here, in the way he approaches his subject matter. Consider the opening passage from his 2011 paper, and I quote, Evolution is fundamental about patterns of change in natural systems. On the surface, the study of evolution sounds easy enough, but in practice, it is a very difficult task. Numerous complications arise out of sampling constraints, the temporal and spatial scales of observation, and the simple fact that there are many potential forces driving evolution. There are good historical reasons why processes such as selection, mutation, migration, and drift have often been modeled independently. Selection is essentially change driven by differential payoffs or fitnesses within populations, while mutation, drift, and potentially migration describe stochastic sources of change unrelated to payoffs or fitnesses. Fascinating. These are very large abstractions, massive subjects of study or analysis, ones that he feel are large enough to be modeled independently. Fascinating indeed. I infer from Brantingham's approach in this paper that he believes modeling will tell a story about the history of past societies and that it will do so efficiently. But I also infer here that he is doing so in such a way that entirely takes for granted what is meant by the social and the political. 
much like the way in which the introduction of modeling into archaeology back in the 1980s had a sandbox-like allure to it. There is something novel here when Brantingham frames massive historical forces, like migration, as an object of and for quantification. There is nothing self-evidently mathematical or even quantifiable about migration as a social or political phenomenon. Writers such as Ali Biljik from the field of critical security studies reminds us that modern migration is forced due to political reasons. Of the three million Syrians living in Turkey today, they are not merely migrants by choice. They are refugees who are forced to flee their homes, he says, and their societies due to political reasons and over matters of life and death. While you'd be correct in reminding me here that Brantingham's invocation of migration is likely done within an ancient context, boundaries, rights, displacement, and identity politics are not bound by time nor modernity. Elsewhere, Waldinger and Soule argue that, and I quote, Migration is an inherently political phenomenon. In leaving home, migrants vote with their feet, against the home state and for the receiving state, preferring a state with resources needed to provide public goods and make markets work over one that can't. In doing so, the migrants also do what neither state wants. Their departures and entries illuminate problems of state capacity on both sides of the chain, highlighting the home state's inability to retain its people while underscoring the receiving state's inability to control its border to the extent that the populace wants. While these authors provide a political sociology of contemporary and not ancient circumstances, is this passage not revealing of the inherent socialness and politicalness of moving bodies over vast distances? Why leave? Under what circumstances? Where will you go? And what will happen when you get there? Compelling answers to these questions, regardless of when they are asked, and to what actors at various points in history requires anecdotes, written expressions, lived experiences, and recorded insights that are not quantitative in content and nature, but qualitative through and through. To quantify the movement of migration is to silence the content of migrants' minds, souls, tongues, and bodily traumas. My point here is that within Brantingham's paper is potentially a very specific intellectual bias called positivism. The belief that every rationally justifiable position can be scientifically verified or is capable of mathematical proof. While its defenders claim it is a philosophy, many subscribers to the more critical intellectual traditions of social and political theory and criticism have dismissed positivism as an antiquated intellectual attitude, or bias, 
because positivism vehemently subscribes to the belief that society can only be made knowable through scientific evidence like statistics. Positivism does not leave any room to negotiate or understand social complexity beyond measurement. And the evidence of Brantingham's subscription to a positivist orientation toward the world is not only evidenced in his writings. As Jeff Brantingham himself told the Los Angeles Times in 2010, the naysayers want you to believe that humans are too complex and too random, that this sort of math can't be done. But humans are not nearly as random as we think. In a sense, crime is just a physical process. And if you can explain how offenders move and how they mix with their victims, you can understand an incredible amount. As Predpol proved, evidently not Dr. Brantingham. Let's return to positivism here for a moment. Does anything come after it? Yes, post-positivism. The tradition that I identify with, which critiques positivism by embracing subjectivity while abandoning the certainty and commitment to true objectivity held by positivists. Positivists reject the idea that reason and meaning could exist beyond data, which is unacceptable to post-positivists because it ignores the significance of what can be observed, what can be felt, what can be experienced and rationalized beyond calculation. Post-positivists believe in reality. We believe that it can also only be known imperfectly, that worldviews are biased, and that this is inevitable. The goal then is to try our best to negotiate and work through imperfection, uncertainty, and that which is not measurable in the pursuit of a life worth living. Accordingly, if positivism could be defended as a philosophy, it can also be critiqued as a commitment to an inflexibly self-serving intellectual attitude. And it is on this basis that I argue Brantingham does not merely subscribe to positivism. His commitment to positivism is an intellectual bias that ignores art, spirituality, and metaphysics. It is a philosophical intolerance if it is philosophical at all. And at the very least, it creates socio-political biases about humanity. And so, to Brantingham, measurement is enough. It's adequate. It's capable of effectively explaining complex human history. A dangerous consequence of oversimplifying these things is that you naively sanitize the historical significance of things like ethnic plight and religious persecution. To strip vitally important historical processes of their inherent complexity in order to make them more innocuously fit mathematics is ethically irresponsible. Why? Because when you build digital systems that end up harming a population, it is incumbent upon you to understand where you went wrong. We are now beginning to enter the realm of the ethics of research and the ethics of our way of thinking. And so I move to new questions here. Ones which ask, what are the dangers of our outputs 
What assumptions do we make when we craft into the world? What biases do I bring in ways that inescapably steer and color what I am about to do? When my preoccupations affect people around me, how will I find out, or as importantly, will I have the attitude to even find out? For work conducted in contemporary policing, the stakes in these questions are high indeed. So let's revisit Brantingham's CV. Let's go back to that pivotal time when Jeff first began working with the LAPD on Predpool in 2010. The time when Brantingham made that dramatic shift in his research interests away from ancient history and toward modeling contemporary crime. In 2011, he co-authors a paper called Self-Exciting Point Process Modeling of Crime. One of its co-authors is named George Moeller, Associate Professor of Computer and Information Science and Director of the School of Science Institute for Mathematical Modeling and Computational Science at IUPUI, or Indiana University Purdue University Indianapolis. Muller's research focus is on statistical and deep learning approaches to solve, as he states, problems in spatial, urban, and network science. Muller began doing this research around 2011, about the same time, but not before, Brantingham began his new research interests in predicting crime. Muller is an expert in self-exciting point process modeling. What does that even mean? Self-exciting point process refers to random sequences of events where the occurrence of an event increases the likelihood that subsequent events occur nearby in time and space. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Using modeling to study random historical sequences? But it's still a bit confusing to me, so I'm going to reach into my critical thinking toolkit to interpret the meaning of this definition and thereby, perhaps, offer a more accessible explanation. The term self-exciting is intriguing to me. It reminds me of a high-energy child who has consumed too much sugar at the theme park. It can also be recognized as a terminology found in biological and mechanical cybernetics to explain how a system generates its own energy. So then, it seems we are dealing with a phenomenon that is capable of making its own energy, but one that is random and is sequenced. Unpredictable but sequential events make their own energy, and they do so, apparently, with a condition. If that random self-powering event happens once, and because its occurrence seems to be unpredictably sequential, it is likely to trigger another similar event nearby in space and time. Fascinating. A random event that has energy will cause another random event that has its own energy. This sounds like an interesting idea. It's an interesting concept to think about. It sounds to me like a logic that one might find in the study of something scientific, something atomic, or even perhaps something natural but most certainly not social or political. This brings me to my next question. I ask, where exactly 
are Brantingham and Moeller getting this idea from? Where does this concept come from exactly? This self-exciting point process. It comes from seismology, the branch of science concerned with earthquakes. It seems that when an earthquake appears, collecting data upon it may allow a seismologist to predict another earthquake caused by its aftershock, or at least to understand the nature and the consequence of the aftershock itself. While the rate at which disturbances caused by an earthquake may vary over space and time, the premise of the model is that another potentially disruptive event will occur relatively soon and relatively close by. As Muller and Brantingham state in their 2011 paper, highly clustered event sequences are observed in certain types of crime data, such as burglary and gang violence, due to crime-specific patterns of criminal behavior. Highly clustered event sequences are observed in certain types of crime data, such as burglary and gang violence, due to crime-specific patterns of criminal behavior. Similar clustering patterns, they say, are also observed by seismologists. What? I'm not sure what they mean. That's the connection? Because those who study earthquakes see a pattern, if you are able to find another pattern in crime, therefore you have found the rationale to import one way of studying and analyzing the world into another completely unrelated domain. That's the connection? But that's not a connection at all. That's not logical. We're not talking about causation. They are talking about correlation. There is a supposed correlation between clustered event sequences in one set of data. Therefore, it must exist in an unrelated set of data worth analyzing in the same way. I've seen this before. And surely you have too. Many of you have encountered Tyler Vigan's Spurious Correlations website, where there are endless charts showing similar plots of dots along similarly rising and falling lines, depicting spurious correlations of, for example, data on the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool against data on the number of films Nicolas Cage has appeared in. A correlation factor of 0.666004 between the years of 1999 and 2009 sure makes for what appears to be the unearthing of an otherwise hidden scientific truth. No. Of course not, it's just a joke. Surely nobody has taken these liberties elsewhere in more serious contexts. Oh, but wait, that's right, they have. Google tried this once, and it failed spectacularly. You might recall from around 2008, researchers at Google became rather apprehensive with the vast amounts of data they were sitting on. As Pink, Linzeni, and Horst wrote not all that long ago in the Journal of Big Data in Society, what the presence of data often means for those who have an abundance of it is that we form relationships with that data in very anxious ways. To use that data, the scholars say, often becomes chaotic and muddled, part of the inevitable uncertainty of what will happen next. Ill-conceived ideas leading to numerous problems. 
Google's researchers have known for well over a decade that search histories contain all sorts of data that can be used to build assumptions about what a user wants, what a user needs and desires and is concerned about, and so on. And from that data or potentially significant information, right? Returning to 2008, Google researchers looked at this trove of search history data and they declared that by studying it, they can predict the flu. They hypothesized that when people are sick with the flu, they will search the internet about the flu. By tracking the spread of this data and relaying that derived information or insights to United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, perhaps Google could assist the CDC in predicting who will get the flu two weeks faster than ever before. It seemed to work for a while. They published a paper in the journal of Nature talking about its promises. And then it failed. It entirely missed the peak of the 2013 flu season by 140%. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This is not a disavowal of the potential value of big data. Rather, it's a reminder of that ever important tension between causation and correlation. The Google's researchers had fallen prey to what Lazar, Kennedy, King, and Ves Pignani called big data hubris, the implicit assumption that big data sets trump traditional data collection and analysis. Could Muller and Brantingham be making the same mistake? According to professors Moses and Chan, who published precisely on this matter in the Journal of Policing and Society, the answer to me seems resoundingly clear, yes. While the authors say that they are not intending in their analysis to indict any predictive policing system, their review of PredPol reveals that Muller and Brantingham's usage of self-exciting point process correlates crime data with earthquake data. And I quote, This model assumes that crimes such as residential burglaries or gang violence operate similar to earthquake aftershocks. In order to determine the variables, there is an iterative process of estimation from a sample of events. What's concerning here is this. Predictive tools used in policing, including PredPool, are based upon assumptions about crime risk and its social, spatial, and temporal correlates. Even in a world of perfect surveillance, the authors write, complexity implies that it would not be possible to predict future crime with certainty. To do so relies on a host of technical, organizational, social, and ethical assumptions implicit in the successful operation of predictive policing. The authors then go on to cite a host of errors and concerns. For example, in data collection, PredPol's designers incorrectly assumed that data collected about the real world would somehow accurately reflect its reality. Data collected on crime can only be done so when crimes are committed, that are chosen to be reported by individuals who see them, by officers who happen to directly report upon what they're observing at that point in time. There is thus a considerable gap between crimes committed and crimes seen and crimes reported. This is not a random phenomenon, it is systemic. 
the type of crime, the characteristics of victims, and differences in available and accessible data are all mitigating factors that all predictive policing systems fail to address, the authors remind us. As importantly, crime data that tend to be entered into systems like PredPol also depend upon what an officer considers to be a crime worthy of entering into a system. How they respond to an incident and how and whether the incident is reported in a serious or non-serious way matters. As Gittleman reminds us, raw data is indeed an oxymoron. And as Moses and Chan perhaps best put it, the practice of predictive policing itself affects the data collected. The presence of more police officers in a particular neighborhood may spur the recording of crime in that neighborhood. Predictions can accordingly become self-affirming, or, as other critics have noted elsewhere, self-fulfilling. A feedback loop, as Moses and Chan argue, is self-perpetuating, potentially resulting in observed stability of crimes, locations, and individuals monitored by police despite potential changes in the actual crimes being committed. The authors go on. Systems like PredPol fail in assuming that the future is like the past. Historic crime patterns assume a degree of continuity in public safety or lack thereof. These systems fail in assuming that algorithms are neutral. Not only are the datasets problematic, the algorithms they use mustn't disproportionately focus on individuals and communities that share particular types of characteristics, such as race, religion, and ethnicity, or the locations within which they reside. Failing to do so may result in overstimulated police presence and the production of hotspots laden with false positives that invariably lead to accidental arrests and accusations. Caroline Haskins, a journalist investigating PredPol, interviewed Dr. Suresh Venkata Subramanian, a professor of computing at the University of Utah, about Brantingham and Moeller's usage of an earthquake prediction model to predict crime. He said this, The key difference is that in earthquake models, you have seismographs everywhere. Wherever an earthquake happens, you'll find it. The crux of the issue, really, is that to what extent are you able to get data about what you're observing that is not also totally reliant upon the model itself? Earthquakes may happen anywhere, and perhaps so too does crime, but he makes a powerful point. Crime is socially, politically, and culturally complicated. It cannot be measured as easily as earthquakes. On top of that, Vincata Subramanian reminds us that because this data is collected as a byproduct of police activity. Predictions made on the basis of patterns learned from this data do not pertain to future instances of crime on the whole. In this sense, predictive policing is aptly named. It is predicting future policing, not future crime. Before I return back to my concerns with the creators of PredPol, I ask one final question. Is using an algorithm designed in one domain ethically appropriate for usage in another? 
I strongly suspect you already have your answer. Predpol is rapidly failing. In the aftermath of the 8,000 Americans that have been murdered by police since 2016 in the United States alone, who are predominantly black, including George Floyd, Dante Wright, Breonna Taylor, and Janisha Fonville, on top of the ongoing systemic issues and racism and increased militarized policing, it is perhaps of no surprise that many police departments across the U.S. are canceling right now their usage of Predpol. The most recent of which was the LAPD itself. Despite years of efforts by community activist Hamid Khan to have the LAPD's Inspector General audit Predpol itself, and despite the Inspector General saying that this task was impossible because the tool is too complicated, Critics are not convinced when they hear that the LAPD's recent decision to cancel Predpol was due to monetary restrictions imposed by COVID-19. The cancellation of Predpol by the LAPD comes only one year after that same department had its eight-year anniversary with Predpol, a year in which they also publicly declared that they were unable to measure whether Predpol actually works. But what has been measured in the past eight years is that predictive policing does not work. It factually reinforces police and racial bias. It factually assigns high risk scores that lead to disproportionately enhanced prosecutions. It increases profiling during routine traffic stops. And the systems are not designed to be audited even if they could be corrected. An algorithm designed to predict natural phenomena not only fails to predict social phenomena, it creates and perpetuates harms and injustices. There is a serious absence of accountability and responsibility from the researchers who dabbled in new research areas and took advantage of an opportunity to try something new. This is a situation that could have been avoided had the researchers been more reflexive and self-aware by not asking whether modeling can be done, but by asking whether it ought to be done. When we are not self-aware of the implications of our biases and our assumptions, whether personal or professional, when we are not trained to be able to see our own biases and assumptions, we fall prey to oversimplifying and underrepresenting inherent social, cultural, and political complexities. Positivism is not just a philosophy. It is rather a philosophical intolerance. And at the very least, a bias that takes for granted the inherent complexity of the social and the political and the cultural, and it is a sign of intellectual naivety that can lead to serious problems. We have a responsibility to the populations we serve. If we study outside of our realm of expertise and training. It is our responsibility to seek help, especially from and not in spite of our strongest critics. Thank you for listening.